Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Katie Rader of Jacobin. Uh, there was a phenomenal new study that just came out from Jacobin, YouGov, and the Center for Working Class Politics. Uh, and they basically titled the study, Kyle Kalinske and Crystal Ball are right about everything. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not even really the kidding. The case for Bernie 2024. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's basically about how progressive populism is, empirically speaking, the most popular message and the easiest way to win an election. And they compared that up against... They compared it against... Okay, so here were your four quadrants. You had your populist progressive... You had your woke moderate, which was the worst. You had your woke progressive. And then you also had your sort of moderate, like Joe Biden type. So and there, you had a Republican. Too. And you also had a Republican. Republican so the, yeah. the politicians, they modeled this after the progressive populist was Bernie. Um, he's like the only one that even falls in that category, which is sad, which is something we can talk about. Um, the woke progressive was AOC and Ayanna Presley, kind of modeled after their language. The woke moderates were like Beto and Kamala. Mm -hmm. And then the moderate centrist, I don't know what they called a moderate something, um, was like a Joe Biden type candidate. Right. Yeah. So those those were their buckets. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, what I love about this is it's all empirical now. It's all data driven. Mm -hmm. And who are they talking to? They're talking to people who are Democratic voters. They're talking to independents. And they threw in a, a few conservatives, right? Yeah, so they wanted to use a pool. These were all working class voters. So all the working whole, class. Whole the whole idea thing. here right. is, you know, people who are in the working, multiracial working class in swing states. In swing who states, are that's huge. Even remotely gettable by the Democratic Party. Right. So people who were just hardcore, hardcore right wing partisans gone. The listening to Rush gone. Limbaugh, yeah. those people, you know, rest in peace, Rush, I guess, or whatever. Anyway, whatever you want to say about Rush. Rest anyway, rest listening, used to listen to. <laughs> to Rush Limbaugh, um, watching Fox News all day, those people were left out. Right. It was just people who were even potentially winnable. And lo and behold, so, progressive populist messaging wins out and it's not particularly close. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to have a fantastic conversation about that. I'm really looking forward to it. I love when I'm told how right I am all the time. <laughs> um, but before, before we get into that, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Chris Christie and Donald Trump are going at it. Yeah, this is a fun one. A battle of the bloated, is what <laughs> I like to call it. <laughs> battle of the bulbous. <laughs> battle of the beluga whales. Anyway, uh, sorry, these are fat jokes. I'm not allowed to make them. Um, well, I'm a little, I got a, I got a belly. Right? A little pudger? You're good. Well, I know, but I'm saying as long as you got you're a little good. bit of a pudger, you're good. You think that gives you license? Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll go with yeah. it. I got a broken leg. Everybody give me a, give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> It's not broken. It's the calf. Calf is torn. Anyway, uh, so Chris Christie w basically went out there and said, all right, enough with the shit. The 2020 election's over and done. Joe Biden won. Get over it. www.getoverit.net. That's what Chris Christie said. And uh, so, of course, Trump catches wind of this. And Trump releases a statement, which, by the way, his statements are now, like, nearly impossible to find online. Yeah. They're fucking hiding those shits. Yeah, they Like, are. I get it. You guys sort of deplatformed him from 70 different places. But I should, if I'm looking for the former president of the United States statement, his own shit, I should be able to find it. It's nearly impossible to find it. Anyway. Um, and he basically says, like, nobody wants to hear from you. I, re I honestly thought he was going to hit him with some, like, over some the kind top. of fat joke thing. Right. He yeah. didn't. 
I was like, oh, you, he's losing a step. Donald Trump's classier than you are, Kyle. No, we'll he's, he's lost a step. He's less entertaining <laughs> than I am now. That's the difference. Uh, I wish he said something uh, like that. Anyway, so um, he uh, the hardest line in, in Trump's response was like, when Chris Christie left office, he had a 9% approval rating. Nobody wants to hear from you. And when I read that, I was like, oh, snap, son, 9%? That's pretty bad. Now, just for the record, I didn't look this up. I don't know if you want to look it up as I'm talking I'll right now, but he may have made that shit up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, because I know I remember when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney left office, it was a huge deal that they were in the 20-something percent. Like somebody was at 21%, somebody was at 29%, and everybody looked at that like, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, by the way, Kamala right now is 28%. All right, I'm not seeing nine, but I am seeing 15. Okay, so Trump exaggerating, of course, but not by much. Uh, so either way, hilarious. Um, but then Chris Christie, yet again, and by the way, I think he's posturing for a 2024 run, don't mm -hmm, you? That seems to be the, the Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley came out and gave a speech and attacked all the other Republicans, I'm not kidding, for being socialist light. <laughs> She gave a speech saying all the other Republicans are socialist light, and except me, Nikki Haley, I'm the true oh, capitalist. She's the or worst. Oh, she's and she's the worst. and she has the personality of oatmeal. Like you're not going anywhere. Relax. Anti charisma. Yeah, but the elite lover, the donor the class, loves her. Loves oh my her. god, I know. Yeah. Think, oh my god, she's a woman and maybe slightly. She's of color. like the Kamala so, Harris of of the Republican Party. Nailed it. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. So um, Chris Christie responds to Trump because now, well, Chris Christie learned after the Marco Rubio back and forth in the um, twenty six was twenty sixteen. Yes. I think, yeah, 2016 primary when Chris Christie buried Marco Rubio when he finally let himself go. Like, he was sort of holding back because of the staffers. Christie was too buttoned up for most of the primary. And then finally, when he realized he had no more shot, he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to start throwing haymakers. And when he started doing that, everybody liked him. And he buried Marco Rubio. And so I think Chris Christie learned that lesson now. And he's like, if I'm going to run again, I better start throwing my haymakers now. So what's Christie doing? Now he's not backing down anymore. So Trump says the thing about 9%. And Christie fires back and says, I love this because it's so passive aggressive. He says, like, I'm not going to get into back and forth with Donald Trump. And then he goes on to get into but, back and forth with Donald Trump. But, and he says, yeah. <laughs> but what I will say is this. When I ran for re-election in 2013, I got 60% of the vote. When he ran for re-election, he lost to Joe Biden. So I'm happy to have that comparison stand up because that's the only thing that really matters. Or that's the, that's the one that really matters. It's a pretty good point. See, this is the problem. Like, Trump... Trump was able to become Trump because he's so bra uh, brash and abrasive. Yeah. And he would just say shit. Yeah. But he's also an idiot. Whereas Chris Christie can be brash and abrasive, and he's not as dumb as Trump. He's still dumb, but he's not as dumb as Trump. Yeah. Um, I've always thought Chris Christie, I find his politics abhorrent. He, oh, of course, became popular in New Jersey by basically, like, yelling at teachers <laughs> and crusading against unions. Terrible. Um, so— Obviously, his politics are terrible. I've always thought he was very politically talented and one of the more uh, talented politicians on the Republican side. I think if he had remember, there was a whole like effort to pull him into the 2012 primary yeah. Republican primary that ended up being Mitt Romney, who was like cartoonishly out of touch. And, you know, the trees are the right height and all that stuff. <laughs> the trees are the right <laughs> Binders full of women. Um, we had binders full of women. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think if Christie had jumped into that primary, number one, I think he would have won. And number two, I think he would have been a much more formidable opponent against Obama and could have ended up potentially as president because I do think he is a skilled politician. He's very quick on his feet. He's very, he's got a big presence. I'm not, that's, 
I didn't even mean to say. It. I really mean he's got like. I was the one making the fat jokes. I know jokes. he's got a, he's got a lot of charisma. Um, is what I'm trying to say here. Uh, so anyway, but I felt like in 2016 when he jumped into that Republican primary and did that moment with Marco Rubio. I could watch it on a loop so many times. It's so satisfying to watch him just call out Marco and make him look like a total idiot. But I felt like Trump kind of blocked his lane because that's right. Because Trump could out brash and out brazen and out bully and out like ridiculous. He was ruined by the consultants. Everybody. He was ruined by the consultants. So I didn't really think that he came off as any different. I just thought that Trump was more of what his lane had been. So if Christie was like, you know, a nine on the brazen brash, whatever. Oh, he was a two on that shit at the beginning of the primary. Really? Are you kidding me? Go back and watch. He was clearly told by the consultants. You need you to tell it down. You got to reel it in. You got to be a politician. And he took that shit to heart and he listened to them. And he realized at the end that they failed me. Yeah. Because Christie was the original Trump. Christy was the original guy who would just go around right. yelling at people and I saying think, wherever the fuck he and wanted. And I think that—and people loved that. I they mean, did. I mean, that's why he won all the time. He won big in New Jersey. When he collapsed—and New Jersey, obviously, it's a blue state. It's hard to win as a Republican. What he collapsed over was the whole Bridgegate thing, and that was a total, See, total mess and disaster for him. Christie's problem was with the hardcore Republican base, too. Because he, remember when it was one of the hurricanes, maybe it Hurricane Sandy, he hugged, he hugged Obama, Obama. And they made a huge deal on that. Yeah. Right-wing radio went after him for a well, long they, time. Well, they thought that he gave Obama that election with that hug. That's right. So they, they blamed they him for that They blamed shit. him for Obama winning but a second term. What Christie didn't realize is you could have won back the Republican base by out-alpha-mailing everybody on stage, which yes. is what Trump did. Trump out-alphaed everybody on stage, and they were all like— Ooh, I like this guy. Yeah. If Christie just did that shit, they would have liked him more. Yeah, but I guess I would. What I would say about this, like Christie versus Trump thing, is that ship has kind of sailed. I mean, Trump owns a party now, and so I don't think that it will ultimately work for Christie if his strategy is to be like going up directly against Trump. But okay. if Trump runs in the in the Republican primary, he is going to win. I don't think there's any way around that. If he doesn't run, you're going to want to be endorsed by him. And probably the smartest thing to do in terms of ultimately winning a general election is to walk the Glenn Youngkin line and, you know, kind of hand the, like arm length distance. That's but the other problem, not with reject. The other problem with Christie is he has now internalized the mainstream media narrative and the mainstream media narrative across the board is that like. Trump is toxic. Trump is terrible. January 20th or January 6th, excuse me. Um, you know, stop the steal stuff. Crazy, 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 crazy. And he's now internalized that. So I think he. He's in too many green rooms now. Well, right. So he yeah. incorrectly feels like, oh, I'm just saying the thing that everybody believes. But it's like, actually, no, the base, of, which are the people you have to appeal to to some extent, believe all that shit. So what? So the person right. who's the model, like you said, is Yunkin, where what Yunkin did, which was very masterful as a politician, is he walked that fine line between not being a Trump sycophant, but not being anti-Trump. And so what he did is, for example, he didn't want Trump to campaign with him in Virginia. Right. There was a story about it. he didn't want him to campaign with him, which was actually intelligent. Looking and back I think at it. Trump, it ended up being pretty close. I think if Trump I had campaigned for him, I think he would have lost. I think he would have lost because the sub suburbs were really big in handing it over to Yunkin. So yeah. and he didn't talk about immigration at all, even with the mess at the border. He didn't uh, have Trump come talk for him. But he did get every now and then he would give a little head fake or give a little wink or a nod to the Trump people. Yeah, he'd, you know? he'd do like we need electoral he would talk about like election fraud right, and stuff our like that and yeah. yeah and they were but like never, oh okay yeah we see what us, you right? mean yeah. we see what you mean exactly and and you know 
it was a real question whether he'd be able to pull that off for the entire election. I think the fact that he hadn't been in elected office before, so he hadn't had to stake out any positions for or against Trump, also made it easier for him to be able to walk that line. But I mean, first of all, I personally think Trump is going to run again. Um, And if he does, like I said, he will be the nominee. I just can't, you know, I just can't see anyone else being able to take that from him. Let me say this. First of all, it is a big if if he can run again because he's about a thousand years old and he's not the healthiest person. He's got a healthy diet, right? Yeah. A lot of exercise. Three Big Macs a day. Um, (laughs) But the other thing is, it's not like there aren't people waiting in the wings who have talent. DeSantis is can be viable. He can, and he is another one who does. I mean, he's terrible, but I do think he has political talent. And I'll say this. I even think if, if Trump's not running, I think mm-hmm. it mostly comes down to DeSantis or Pence. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Pence is particularly politically talented personally, but I think DeSantis probably has more of a read on it. But then again, I mean, it just depends on how things shake out with Trump and who he decides he wants to back, because I do think that'll be a huge factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he does want to run, though. There's no doubt about that. I think that's obvious. I mean, the Republican base was running around the Capitol not long ago, like not the base. Some people, a fringe, running around the Capitol recently saying they want to hang Mike Pence. So I do think that that's an obstacle for him to getting the Republican nomination. No, no, I don't think so. You think they'll get over that? It's not that they'll get over that. It's that the national uh, psyche is like goes like two and a half minutes back, you know, like by by 2024. Republicans would be like, what even January? What was even January 6th? Did something happen then? What are you talking about? Mm, I don't know about that. They're holding on to this one really hard. I'm telling you, Mike Pence still. I do think, though, your point about Christie and the media and how he's kind of internalized their thinking and their read on the Republican base is an apt one because he— his first comment was about, we need to stop relitigating this last election. And he got all kinds of media— praise and love and attention over that. And so I think he felt rewarded for making those comments, distancing himself from Trump. And that's why he's now leaning into this. And maybe he doesn't want to run. Maybe he just wants attention. And if he wants to do that and he wants a like highly paid, another highly paid media gig, this is a good path to that. And he also has a personal grudge against Trump because I think Trump to the very last minute was considering Christie for a high position in the administration. And then he fucked him on it. Yeah, but Christie was with Trump all the way through. I mean, he advised him for his debates and all of that. No, I mean, but there was, was a falling out at some through. point. When Trump didn't pick him to be in the administration, they were—, they were Well, that, and that was all Jared Kushner because of the bad the Kush, Kush, blood. Because Kush, Christie Christ put Kushner's, Kushner's dad, dad yeah. in prison, so— That's what's up, Christie. That was— <laughs> Best thing you ever did. <laughs> that was— <laughs> A fucking little well, weasel. You know, Jared had a little bit of a, an axe family. to grind there. Yeah, and he had a crime um, family. And reportedly, he kept Christie out of the administration, but apparently they forgave and forgot or whatever— between Trump and Christie because he was back advising him all the way up until pretty recently. So there you go. Yeah, there we have it. Um, Another story we wanted to get uh, to talk a little bit about here. This is an interesting one. So obviously inflation numbers have spiked in a way that um, is truly an issue for working class people. I mean, some of the things that are going up in price significantly, grocery store items, meat in particular has spiked, gas prices leading the list of, you know, price increases. You also have uh, rent, which is going up. So things that really hit the pocketbook hard. Okay. That being said, a lot of the media takes on inflation and why it's happening are absolutely terrible. All of them are terrible, but go on. (laughs) Yeah. Well, ours over at Breaking Points are not terrible. We don't count as the media. I'm sorry, (laughs) we don't. We're not part of the media. We're all the media. 
But one in particular uh, recently stood out to us. So Adam Green on Twitter actually grabbed this video, but I'll just read you the quote. MSNBC host Stephanie Rule, who can be counted on to align with the banker class Mm -hmm. at all times. She was complaining about inflation and about the desire to create high wage jobs. She said, quote, We don't have enough people to fill our current jobs. And this argument that there are going to be jobs at, she did the air quotes, higher wages, higher wages are one of the contributing factors to inflation. What do you think of that, Kyle? Well, first of all, it's just factually wrong. That's not true at all. So let me walk everybody through my thinking on this. My initial thought was that, okay, so we're seeing some inflation now. What's behind that? What's going into that? My gut reaction was that of probably most Americans, which is probably has something to do with those two massive COVID stimulus bills. Now, a lot of that money was geared, you know, went directly to corporations, by the way. But still, you increase the money supply that much that quickly, you think, okay, yeah, it's possible that that can lead to inflation. Um, here's the problem with that thinking. It's wrong. It's actually not true. So I talked to people who know about this, people who are experts, people who are economists, you know, just to give a couple names here, Jeff Stein for one of the Washington Post, spoke to him, spoke to, uh, who's, by the way, like one of the only good people at the Washington Post, just to be clear, uh, the Brunigs, um, Matt in particular, and some others. And what they impressed upon me in no uncertain terms is that inflation has to do with the supply chain full stop. Like, all of the inflation that we're seeing is based around the supply chain. Um, so, because I had asked, my question to them was, well, wait a second. If, you know, the problem with inflation is, you know, the money supply grew too fast, too quick. Too much money t- chasing too few Chasing goods. too few goods, of course. Well, wouldn't taxing the rich then be a solution because you can make the money supply less if you just tax the mega wealthy and tax them a lot, right? That was my question to them. And, I, you know, I, fra- I phrased it as like, well, here's a dumb question. <laughs> Am I right about this? And basically the response was like, yeah, there are some economists who think that taxing the rich can have some issue on that, can have some effect on that, excuse me. Yeah. But really, it all comes back to the supply chain, which, by the way, so you ready for this? Ironically, the solution would be the fucking opposite of what she's saying. She's bemoaning what the solution is. Right. Because it, one of the ways to address the massive uh, supply chain issues is greatly increase production and manufacturing here in the United States of America. Yes. Because we're so dependent on goods coming from overseas. Yes. And let me give you one specific example. First of all, I would love to know on her higher wages point, what she earns... Apparently she are doesn't. You, are you going to give up your you, job? Oh, are you inflation. fueling inflation over Stephanie, there, Stephanie? Stephanie, cut your salary in half for the good of the nation, please. <laughs> there you go. Of course, it never applies to her. her no, of course. Her not. social set. These conversations about you know people not working and the labor force, all that stuff. It only applies to people who are working lower wage jobs. So let's just stipulate that to start with. But a perfect example of what you're saying, something that I've actually tried for a long time, the port truckers who we need to take the goods from the port and put them either at the, you know, to get on trains or to go to the warehouse. These people are in in large part indentured servants. I mean, the Teamsters has done a good job organizing some of them and getting them contracts with livable wages. But a large part of the workforce is literally working for almost nothing. I'm talking about truckers working endless hours and at the end of the week, they owe 
the company they work for money. Tell them the way the scam works because it's really interesting. The way the scam works, and of course, this is a largely a, a lot of immigrants um, who you know don't have a lot of other employment opportunities. English language may be limited, so very vulnerable group that's being exploited here. And effectively, what these trucking companies do is they have you sign a contract where the idea is you're leasing your truck to own. You're responsible for all of the repairs, the gas costs, every all the costs associated with the trucks, and you're making a payment with the idea that eventually you're going to own this truck. Except what happens is that this payment is so expensive, and you are only getting paid when you are actually moving the cargo, not when you're waiting in the massive lineup to go and get the cargo. Yep. Oftentimes, you end up making less than minimum wage or actually owing money at the end of the week. Some of the tactics here are blatantly illegal. Um, as I mentioned, the Teamsters have been trying to organize all of the port truckers, but you know, when you go and you look at this and you're like, oh, there's a labor shortage. Why aren't there enough truckers? It's like, who would want to do this yeah. job? Why aren't there more indentured servants? This right. Is up. This is insane, right? Yeah. So, um, in fact, if you paid truckers higher wages, they would be able to move those goods. That would work out one kink in the supply chain. And then you would maybe start to get a handle on inflation. That is one thing that you could do where the actual problem is the fact that you do not have high wages in that particular industry. So this is just complete nonsense, junk economics that bears no relationship to reality whatsoever. Give everybody uh, the other inflation story that that you explained to me the other week. With the uh, containers and the port. Yes. Okay, so part of what happened here, this is also just to high level there's two big things going on that are driving inflation. Number one is that we outsource so much to China. Number two is that we have monopolization in so many industries. So part of why beef prices, oh, and there's one other, which is climate change. Droughts have driven up costs. Crops have failed in places with droughts. It's driven up the cost of corn. Corn feeds all of these animals. So when the cost of corn goes up, the cost of the animal goes up, and that creates an increase in meat prices. And then you have meat processors that has consolidated into just four that are jacking up prices. So monopoly, that's the issue there. But the one that I was telling you about is um, this relates to China. At the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody around the world suddenly needed PPE, it's all effectively made in China. So all of these shipping containers went out from China to all kinds of places around the world, including places that don't normally import a lot from China and don't really have goods to export back to China. So those shipping containers got stuck in places and, st and started stacking up in places around the world that didn't have things to send back. This causes ultimately shipping costs. You know, there aren't enough containers and that's an issue. And shipping costs spike because there aren't enough containers. Eventually, the price spikes enough so that it makes it worthwhile for everybody to send their shipping containers back to China. And then that creates another backlog and issue in China. And so this gives you one more little glimpse into the type of supply chain issues that are leading to increased prices. It's a little bit complicated, but at the end of the day, it's really not. You know, suddenly people do have 
a little bit more money. And that is part of the story that people are able to spend. That's the good part of the story. Right. Yeah, that's the good that's part. That's the good part. We don't want to change that part, right? The part we want to change is the fact that we have these massive monopolies that are jacking up prices and price gouging and that we have so much of our everything that we buy that is outsourced to China and that has created fragility in our economy writ large. This was a massive crisis, this pandemic. It upturned, you know, it it changed a lot of habits. It really uh, stressed our supply chain system. And because our emphasis for so many years has been on this just-in-time idea, because it would increase profit margins by pennies on the dollar, that has made us dependent on a very fragile system. And that, Stephanie Rule, is the real problem here, not higher wages. And now look at the political impact of the discourse on inflation. Because, again— So my layman's assumption was incorrect when I thought it was tied to the COVID stimulus bills. Guess what? Virtually everybody in elite media and a lot of politicians, including Democratic politicians, totally believe the narrative hook, line, and sinker, the incorrect narrative that, oh, this is because of the big spending bills we did. So now what are they going to say as a result of that? I mean, well, we definitely can't do Mm -hmm. another one of those because if we do another one, we're just going to make inflation worse. So what bill is supposed to pass very shortly? Oh, that's right. Build back better. Oh, that's right. The whatever the few things that remain in there, like, uh, you know, uh, universal pre-K, for example. Yeah. They look at and God forbid, you know, the original three point five trillion dollar bill, which had elder care, universal pre-K, free community college, child tax credit, expanded Medicare, so on and so forth. So now the narrative from the media is it would be unthinkable and totally irrational and it would be political suicide to pass the bill where virtually all the provisions are phenomenally popular and it's a bill that would actually help working class people. Right. So now that's the takeaway. Now the takeaway is, and Joe Manchin already came out, Crystal. Yes. Joe Manchin already came out and said, you know, hey, look, I gave my word, whatever, but I see these new inflation numbers and I think we have to rethink this. And you already have some uh, corporatists in the House, corporate Democrats in the House, like, I mean, what are we going to do? The inflation. So, And nobody in mainstream media is going to come out here, correct the record, give you the reality of what's behind inflation, which it has a lot more to do with the supply side of stuff, right? Yep. And yet again, here we are, and the people get fucked. People having higher wages and having good-paying jobs is an unequivocally good thing. That is not the problem here. The problem here is all of these supply chain breakdowns. And on the mansion part, of course, the media, and you sent this to me, the media is already just backing them up, pretending like this is fact. Pretending it's fact. That's right. Like, it's not their opinion. They're actually—it's not even an opinion. They're just wrong. So— Axios puts out this article, Mansion Chills, Build Back Better. And here is the lead paragraph. Red hot inflation data validates the instinct of Joe Manchin to punt President Biden's Build Back Better agenda until next year, potentially killing a quick deal on the $1.75 trillion package. So they just hook, line, and sinker, buy it. And by the way, it's not like they don't have access to the same people that I have access yeah, to when course. it comes to who are the experts I could talk to who would know more about this than me? Who are the economists I could talk to that would know more about this than me? And I went right to them and asked them before I said anything in detail on inflation. Yeah. And it's not like they don't have access to those people. It's that they're not curious enough to even ask them. And even if they do, I don't think they would go out there and tell the truth because it flies in the face of the narrative that they want to put out there. 
And so now we're stuck in no man's land where the now you're going to have a thousand yeah. news cycles about how because we have inflation that validates Joe Manchin, it validates right wing economics in general. And that's not it's it's just not true. And it's absolutely infuriating because, I you know, it's going to end exactly like we sort of predicted yeah. as soon as they as soon as the progressives mm-hmm. folded and delinked the bills. Yeah. What I went out on my show and I said, OK, there's a couple of different things that could happen, but either absolutely nothing gets passed mm-hmm. and they go, ha ha, we gave you our word, but we don't care. We're just, we'll just change it. We just won't do anything that we said we're going to do. Yeah. Or they'll make the bill significantly worse and then pass that. But at this point, you'd even be lucky to get fucking that. Yeah. And would you even be lucky? Because then the other progressives would have to fall in line to vote for the new bill, which would be worse. And should they even do that? I say no, unless they get executive orders along with it. Yeah. I mean, actually, I'm curious about your position on the bill at this point, because originally, I mean, it seemed very clear to me progressives should vote against certainly the infrastructure bill, but also this bill as a, a way of having leverage to try to increase it, to draw some red lines, to try to increase it. Now, I mean, the game has changed because the infrastructure bill is passed. It's done. The leverage, any sort of leverage that they might have had is over. So at this point, would you vote for the $1.75 trillion? Not without executive orders. Not without executive orders. Your word has to mean something. You can't just all the time just, okay, yeah, okay, oh, sure, sure, sure. What kind of crumbs you would you like? Okay, fine, give me. No, you got to hear. I already said I wouldn't go under $2 trillion. The fact I'm even having a conversation with anybody after they went under $2 trillion, they should be thankful I'm even in the fucking room anymore. But then now at this point, by not voting for it, you're effectively, I mean, that's what the corporatists want is for the whole thing to die. Okay, but then the question is, Biden could light his own presidency on fire by saying, I'm fine, we'll get nothing else. And he's fine with that. But if he wants to not light his presidency on fire, he would need to pass something. And if he feels compelled to pass something to save his own ass politically, okay, then sign the executive orders too. Yeah. Again, it's not on me. People, you know, it's, it's not on me when I'm talking about the negotiation here. The question is, what are your actual red lines? Mm -hmm. That's the real question. And so what are your actual standards then is the question. Right. And everybody's subjective in terms of where they draw that line. But you know, I would obviously contend that where I'm drawing the line is the most reasonable, where originally I wanted over $2 trillion for sure. I wanted no means testing in the bill. I wanted something on the climate in the bill. $2 trillion is, I mean, if anything, it's too fair to their position. That's what I'm saying, right. Because so that's- the original, I mean, what Bernie ran on was like $12 trillion. What Biden, you know, six. wanted was six. And then it was 3.5. Then the compromise is 3.5. And then and Manchin knew, says okay, 1.5. And we're still going. That's right. Two trillion yeah. is still going way so more towards his side than what progressives if originally wanted. If there's anything I'm sympathetic to is the people who would look at me and say, even with the executive orders, you're, be- not enough. you're being too weak. It's not enough. Those people I'm sympathetic to, who I'm not sympathetic to, are the others who would say, you know, I'm drawing too hard a line. No, I'll vote for that shitty watered down bill if you... Free the nonviolent drug offenders, legalize marijuana by taking from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5, uh, abolish all student loan debt, all $1.73 trillion, and then, you know, hey, throw in there, pardon Stephen Donzinger, pardon Julian Assange, pardon uh, Daniel Hale, let Edward Snowden come home. Make a list of 10, and then maybe Biden comes back at you and says, I'm not doing all those things, but I'll do three or four. And you go, okay, deal. Yeah. All student loan debt gone in the country. Because that I can defend to progressives. If progressives tell, progressives tell me, like, you didn't draw a hard enough line. I'll be like, tell that to the people who just had all of their student loan debt eliminated. Yeah. You know what I mean? But yes. I can't make that argument if they don't fight for executive orders, and it looks like they didn't. They did not. I mean, no one should ever take them seriously again. I mean, that's the bottom line.
They yeah. they held for a couple times when they effectively still had kind of had Pelosi's backing in their strategy. And the minute the media started to turn on the like, oh, it's their fault. Don't get me started on Pramila. I'll get banned from YouTube. <laughs> I will. For the love of God. She's out there now talking about, well, we have to trust. We have to trust them. We have to rebuild. Tr- no. Trust. No, we don't. Trust. You think the no, person you think the person who's making less than minimum wage gives a fuck about your trust in some corporate douchebags? I know. You think they care? No, they want paid leave. Well, they want elder care. They want universal pre-K. They don't care about fucking trust. I mean, it's trust. unbelievable because written into their quote-unquote agreement was their very obvious out because their whole thing was like, oh, well, we promise we're going to vote yes on it once we get the CBO score that shows us it's budget neutral. And here's how you know that was bullshit. They all voted for the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and which added care. $250 billion yeah. to the deficit. So now you're talking about budget neutrality. I know. You just voted for something that wasn't budget Not neutral. Not to mention the military budget that they all just casually increase every year. Infuriating. But what is not infuriating is our next guest, because she has some very interesting data that validates a lot of the things that we talk about, but goes really deep and gets very specific on which type of messaging, which type of candidates work with, which groups of people, geography-wise, race-wise, income-wise, all of that. Um, Katie Rader, she's a political scientist uh, and professor at Christopher Newport University. She studies race and labor in the 20th century. She was part of uh, the study that we've been referencing with Jacobin, YouGov, and the Center for Working Class Politics, new institution, which we're pretty excited about. Here joining us now is Katie Rader. Katie, welcome. So glad to have you. Thank you. So glad to be here. Of course. So start by just giving us the basics of what this study is and why it's really unique and different from anything that has been attempted before. Sure. Um, so I can so I can say sort of where the study came from. And it really was sort of two things that describes who we are as this new Center for Working Class Politics. So we were really looking across the field of Uh, political science and social science research that's been done on working class voters. And some of it is contradictory. There's not a lot there. Uh, And then we were also really interested in looking at the sort of progressive political intuitions uh, that point also in a lot of directions. So where the study came from was seeing a real need for uh, a comprehensive study, better understanding working class political behavior. And so we can get some of that information from election outcomes Uh, And we certainly have looked um, in the past at the 2020 election. That was kind of the first project we did as the Center for Working Class Politics was some uh, electoral analysis of the 2020 elections. But we really wanted to have a much more in-depth look. So where I think our study comes in and what's really new and novel about it is we took a different kind of approach to trying to understand um, political behavior of working class, uh, working class voters. Um, now I'll also say up front, we weren't interested in sort of that broad, uh, that broad group. We really wanted to focus in on um, working class voters in swing states and those we see as being likely uh, partners and supporters of a progressive coalition. So we focused in on uh, on Democrats, so strong partisans, uh, Democratic leaners, independents, and then we also had some uh, Republicans in um, in that. Um, so we, what we, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead and cut in. No, well, I was just going to say, so it's, uh, this, the studies from Jacobin YouGov and the Center for Working Class Politics. And, um, what I'm interested in, Katie, is getting, I guess, a little bit more specific about the study. So in -hmm. general, the idea is like progressive populism is very appealing to people. And I guess when you talk about the issue of wokeness, uh, maybe in, in, 
certain areas it works okay, but more generally and more broadly, uh, the progressive populism, the, uh, an economic-focused message does better. But uh, for everybody listening, define a, for us a little bit, what do they mean by, like, wokeness in the study? What do you mean when you use that term? How did we test this exactly? Sure. So, and that's exactly it. I think what we've uh, what we've seen and what we try to set up in the introduction to the study. So, we've seen a lot of progressive candidates uh, run really successful uh, campaigns in uh, in largely safe Democratic districts. Uh, they're largely very urban, and that's that's fantastic. We've seen lots of changes uh, at the local level. We've seen changes in national politics. This leftward shift is certainly um, attributed to that in a lot of national politics. But this isn't. Uh, this isn't going to get us uh, a majority coalition or a strong enough progressive coalition uh, to uh, to get really some of these core um, core policies that we need passed. What just happened with the Build Back Better plan is a, a great example of uh, the fact that we don't have that kind of a majority yet. Um, so when we're thinking about that, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about this, uh, the sort of woke framework, really what we were trying to capture here was a particular type of campaign style uh, and, and a campaign approach, which I think has been used in a lot of those sort of urban, safe democratic districts. Um, so I think the best way to sort of think about this is to actually look at um, look at the soundbite that we, uh, that we use. So I can talk a little bit more about how we set the study up, but we wanted to measure uh, candidates and sort of give the fullest picture of a candidate uh, possible and, and match those in sort of head-to-head um, head-to-head matchups to see what kind of candidates uh, working class voters uh, and non-voters are in there as well uh, preferred. So I so I can read or, or if you guys want to read this woke progressive uh, soundbite, I think that really captures it well. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. For Great. Everybody. OK, so so our woke progressive and this was the soundbite we used in the study. Uh, the people closest to the pain should be the people closest to the power. In Washington, the wealthy and privileged make the rules. But if you're poor or an immigrant or a person of color in America, then we then we you know how hard it is to survive in this country. We need courageous leaders who will protect the most vulnerable, fight for justice and make transformational change. So here, what we're trying to look at is really um, and, and comparing our sort of uh, progressive populist position to this more woke progressive, focusing in and emphasizing particular groups rather than having sort of a, a broader populist uh, sort of uh, pe- the people versus the elite type of message. So that's really what we were looking at separating and um, and studying. And I think we got some good information there. And um, would you say that the, the woke progressive is kind of analogous to like an AOC type of language, the populist progressive is kind of like a Bernie Sanders type of language, and then the more centrist, moder- moderate, I think is the language you use, candidates sort of like a Joe Biden type of candidate. Did you use actual language from specific politicians, or was this sort of created to capture the, the general thrust of those types of politicians? So this was a part that really took us the long, this is probably one of the things that took us the longest to do was actually coming up with these sound bites. So we did, we pulled them from uh, real candidate statements in the last two years. Mm. Um, exactly like you said, our, our, our populist progressive was largely based around Bernie Sanders, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley were two of the um, influences for the woke progressive. Um, look, thinking about the woke moderate, that was really uh, Kamala um, uh, Kamala Harris and, and Christian Gillibrand are sort of the uh, the models there, and then Joe Biden is our um, is our centrist. So, and just to kind of say this too, 
we we created these and then we we actually pre-tested them, which means that we put them back out there and asked people to try to identify um, who those people were. We wanted to make sure that the sound bites we were creating were really kind of capturing the the political campaign style that we were interested in testing. So um, I'm curious about like. So the specifics for a swing state and the progressive populism working, um, give me some, give me some of the numbers, like how, how decisive of a victory is it for progressive populist language? So, so from the, so if you look in the study, we've got, so we actually separated out. I don't know that we have the state to state. We have a geographic breakout there. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, but you can see sort of consistently. So if you see the the Times coverage we got this week, he looks specifically at sort of Republican leaners, and you see, I mean, it it really is quite striking uh, the kind of preference that the the um, populist progressive has. That's the that's the winning category for most of these. And that was um, was there a difference between racial groups in how they responded to the more woke messaging? Yeah. So I think unsurprisingly, woke messaging was. Uh, was more popular uh, with uh, with with uh, minority groups than with uh, than with white respondents. We did have, uh, but but we also saw the same sort of support for the economic populist type messaging um, that across across racial groups as well. And I think one of the most surprising and I think greatest findings of our survey is actually the most popular candidates across all racial groups were actually uh, uh, black female candidates. Those were. Uh, those were extremely popular. So thinking about looking forward and how this study can inform recruiting candidates and identifying people to run, I think we have information both about the types of candidates in terms of demographic breakdown as well as um, political platforms. I thought that was really interesting as well. You effectively found there wasn't a whole lot of difference between genders or between races in terms of voter sentiment. But to the extent that there was an edge, voters actually slightly preferred women and actually slightly preferred black women. But you did find that there was a significant difference for voters depending on class status and between, depending on the type of work that candidates were doing coming into office. Talk about that piece of the study. So, yeah, so we did. So one of the things we tried to do with the study was we came up with uh, a number of different measures uh, for social class. So, so education was part of this, but we also wanted to have a more comprehensive, uh, a comprehensive picture. Uh, so, we came up with a three-dimensional variable for class. This included uh, skill levels, so separating out creative versus more routine work, um, independence on the job, and supervisory status, um, as well as the the type of work, men, uh, sort of mental versus manual. So, that's something we really wanted to look at, and we break down the findings there. I would say overall, again, what we see. Uh, is really consistent that the the populist progressive is um, is the most popular. But we did see some interesting differences. For example, blue collar voters were very very responsive to the kinds of rhetoric that were employed. So they um, sort of that we looked at both the policy platforms and types of issues. We have these issue bundles, and we also looked at like I read before the sound bites and the types of uh, the types of rhetoric. And um, in that, we saw blue collar voters. Uh, were really much, they, they strongly preferred uh, the populist progressive, um, especially over uh, woke, uh, woke language generally. So um, there, was a, there was a focus group that uh, happened after McAuliffe's loss in Virginia to Yunkin, and I just want to read you the results of it and then get your reaction to it and talk about 
how well this matches the results of uh, this study. So they asked which party has better policy proposals. Uh, according to the voters in Virginia, 54% say Democrats and only 14% say Republicans. The rest, 32% say about the same. Um, but then they asked which party has cultural values closer to yours. And 61% said Republicans and 22% said Democrats. Mm-hmm. 17% said about the same. So do you feel like the results of, of the study that you guys did uh, sort of uh, falls in line with the results of this focus group? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think so. I mean, one of the things that we were really interested in doing is, you know, so thinking about the assessment of the 2020 primary, think back to all of that infighting that was happening. You have moderates saying that uh, progressives are totally making it impossible for them to win in their districts by focusing the campaign on things like completely unwinnable policies like Medicare for all and defund the police. And then you have progressives you know, sort of shooting back. Well, everyone who ran on these platforms did really well in their districts. And I think here we see there's some some talking past each other that's definitely happening. But I think what this focus group you're pointing to is also uh, is also helping highlight is that there's a a lot of different kinds of policies within the progressive agenda, and it's somewhat of a mistake to pack them all in, right? So you see strong support for a democratic agenda. I think probably, you know, that's reflecting, uh, I would guess that Virginia survey is reflecting uh, the Build Back Better plan, which has been really, um, uh, I'm sure, is top of mind for a lot of voters. But then on cultural issues, uh, you uh, you see that being something that's uh, that's alienating uh, among workers in Virginia. I'm interested. I'd be interested to know sort of who's in that focus group to see how you know how that aligns with you know our our focus. Because again, we were just really focused on working class voters. Um, but yeah, I would say that it seems like there's a good a good amount of alignment there. So j- just to answer part of your question, at least this was um, a focus group of suburban women in Virginia who went f- okay. who voted for Biden and then flipped to Yunkin. Okay. So I actually should have said that up front because that's a very uh, important piece of context. But yeah, I think that's interesting. Yeah. So that, mean, go ahead, Kate. Oh, so so that's actually a little that's a little surprising because actually the um, if you look so again we we separate out looking at suburban and rural voters in uh, in the sample and and for the most part suburban voters tend to be actually uh, more receptive. I think they're they're supportive of the. Um, of the econ- the sort of bread and butter economic plans, but aren't um, are are more supportive also of the sort of uh, woke messaging as well. Yeah, well, there's also I think I'm sorry, Crystal, but sure. I, there's sort of like an income. Do you think there's like an income level to that as well? So, like in other words, if you're suburban and higher income, then you're more receptive to the woke messaging. Yeah, that that definitely could be part of it. Yeah, um, yeah. What also was interesting to me is you found that. Um, Progressive populist messaging was most promising antidote to woke messaging in rural small town areas, but mainstream moderate messaging is likely, it says, more effective in suburban urban areas. So you can see how sort of all the parts of the Democratic Party have a little bit of a point. The woke messaging mm-hmm. among if you're trying to appeal to college educated suburban moms. Yeah. That was the one demographic that Terry McAuliffe actually did a little bit better with um, this time versus the Joe Biden results. If you're AOC and you're in a majority minority urban district um, and you have a coalition that includes college educated people as well, her messaging makes sense in the context of that district. And when you look at the presidential level, though, that type of messaging, if you're trying to appeal in an Iowa or a Nevada or an Arizona or another swing state, 
then that type of messaging, that's where it really becomes an issue for Democrats to have to overcome. Right. And I think, I mean, I think that's one of the points, one of the points here for us is that, uh, you know, what we're trying to focus on is really winning elections in a particular, uh, in districts that Democrats have really been losing voters, which is among uh, purple districts in swing states, uh, working class, you know, majority working class, which let's, let's be clear is a huge, a huge portion. What are we, we're talking, this is, you know, 63% of voters have no college degree. That's one, that's one sort of uh, measure of what we're thinking about with working class. Uh, and 74% are uh, coming, uh, voters are coming from, you know, households with under uh, $100,000 a year. So this is a really sizable portion of the electorate. Um, but like you're, like you're pointing out, Crystal, we're, we have different kinds of campaign strategies uh, that are needed for these different districts. We have a national media landscape too, which makes this a little bit challenging. But yeah, I think that there are, um, there are different kinds of strategies that are needed in different places. You know, it's interesting. As we have this conversation, I'm reminded of how I felt in 2016 during the Democratic primary. What I would do is um, I'd go and look at the way people voted in each state after the vote rolled in. And I remember looking in New York in particular, where Bernie won basically everything north of New York City in New York. So it was like all of upstate New York, Bernie crushed in. And then it was in, you know, New York City, Hillary Clinton did really well. Uh, another great example is in West Virginia. I think Bernie won every county did. in West Virginia in the 2016 primary. And that actually... Uh, perfect evidence that, you know, uh, bolsters your theory. Bolsters? Did I make that word up? Yeah, I may have no, made that word good. up. No, okay. that's a word. Real word. <laughs> um, it, because, yeah, that that uh, sort of progressive populism is uh, viewed favorably. And, I mean, also you could say almost like inoffensive to rural, did I say that word right? Mm-hmm. Voters. <laughs> and um, so that, that almost matches perfectly with uh, what your study says. What I wanted to ask you about was, I think of like James Carville. James Carville came out recently and said, uh, you know, oh, it's stupid wokeness. That's why Terry McAuliffe lost. And uh, but like you pointed out, we're kind of talking past each other when we have that conversation. He keeps it. He throws a wet blanket of wokeness over everything he doesn't like. So it's not just like defund the police Mm -hmm. and language about sectarianism. He also means, you know, Medicare for all and eliminating student loan debt. Like he categorizes that as wokeness, too. Um, How do we. How do we sort of get through to these kinds of people, to the Clintonites, to the new Democrat types that, you know, these are different conversations that we're having here? Or are they just not receptive to that conversation because they're so against economic progressivism and they're so married to corporatism that they can never separate from that? Um, okay, a lot there. Um, Sorry about that. (laughs) No, no, no. That's okay. I feel like I have to put my political science hat on here for just one, you know, just one minute and say the sort of wet blanket singular explanation for what happened in Virginia. You know, the Virginia governor election uh, never goes well for the sitting party, right? This is kind of, it's part of the sort of midterm trend. So I think that that's one, that's one thing that's happening. Again, here, I think, and what our study helps do is, is parsing into the kinds of, um, I think in the kinds of ways that McAuliffe was unsuccessful and particularly how we saw sort of that, what I think many of us suspected, that slippage of uh, suburban, particularly voters who uh, swung uh, for Biden in the 2020 election, and who, but who are, we shouldn't shouldn't think about as being reliable partisans for the Democrats. We saw them start to slip back to 
um, to Yonkin, who was a more, I think, reasonable Republican and sort of more traditional Republican candidate in a lot of ways and ran his campaign that way um, quite effectively. OK, so that's one part of the answer to your question. And then remind me now where now where we headed next. Um, so thinking about Carville. Yeah. Yeah. So can they so, be how do we separate out? I mean, the way I think both of us talk about this a lot is trying to separate the, out the economic left ideas from the cultural left language. Yes. Right. Is I mean, is that the best way you think to think about it, to talk about it? Where is that divide between the populist progressive and the woke progressive? So so one thing that what we want to be really clear about, too, in the study and, and one thing that our findings show is is not that talking about group-based inequalities, focusing on, you know, so one of the issue areas that we, um, one of the issues that we included in the platform was uh, ending systemic racism. So that was, that was uh, sort of what we used to, to test that kind of, um, that kind of support. That actually, uh, when it's, when it's featured as the primary issue of a campaign or a candidate, that's when we saw some slipping in support among particular um, particular voting groups. But what it's included as part of the issue package, when it's included as part of the agenda, it doesn't hurt those candidates. So it's not that candidates have to shy away from uh, shy away from this. But it really is a strong message that if uh, if Democrats want to be winning with working class voters, they need to be putting forward a really bold economic plan. Uh, and focusing on bread and butter issues like healthcare, like Medicare for all, uh, like jobs for all, um, public infrastructure. These are really important things to have front and center in the campaign, and they need to be sizable um, programs. So I think that's that's part of the concern with the concessions and sort of what we've ended up with out of the um, reconciliation and infrastructure bills is what that will mean for them heading into 2022. I think this point that you're making is really important because a lot of times people who, I mean, listen, obviously this study sort of like validates Kyle and I's worldview very yes. much. <laughs> um, it's the first one that ever did. But something that yeah. we get accused of a lot is like not caring about those issues or just wanting yeah, to placate no. the white working class and let's not talk about race or pretend that's not an issue at all. And I think what's really important here is you're saying, no, no, no. Talking about racial justice and civil rights, this is not actually a turnoff for the white working class. It doesn't mean you're never going to be able to win, you know, obviously for, you know, racial minorities are good with it all the way around and even more okay with the woke language. But even with the white working class, they're they're fine with that. They don't want it to be the number one focus and they don't want this really, you know, sort of academic language that just if you're a politician trying to appeal to a broad swath of people, may not connect with people and may not signal to them that their priorities are also going to be your priorities and that you're really focused on them first and foremost. Do you think that's a fair reading of the results here? Yeah, and I think it's also really fair. So you were talking about sort of the Carville reaction. I think the reaction on the other side is to once again sort of raise up this, this critique uh, that what we see in these elections is the resurgence of a racist white working class. And I think our study really helps to show that the working class and especially democratic leaders among that have really incorporated uh, this language of civil rights and racial justice. They see that as a really uh, clear part of the democratic agenda and not one that's alienating. And that's another sort of finding to roll in here is that 
uh, the Democrat, we didn't find um, evidence that the Democratic Party label was at all uh, sort of off-putting that there's, you know, a need to separate from the Democratic Party to run with these, you know, sort of more moderate voters. So I think, yeah, I think that's really, really important and push back against kind of this common refrain that comes after um, after these elections. You know, and Crystal, I think I, I personally would go just one mini step further than you in this sense. I totally agree that um, you don't have to give an inch on actual policy. You know what I mean? But to your point, it's like, well, what are you, what's the the core of your message? What are you putting front and center? What's, you know, the thing you kind of drive home over and over? That's one thing. It's what do you put front and center versus what are you actually going to do? I wouldn't give an inch on the actual policy itself. But the other thing is when talking about racial justice issues, and, and Katie, you can speak to this as to whether or not you think it's a good idea, but my instinct would be that instead of using the language in, in, in a racialized way, if you just talk about, like, for example, instead of, like, ending systemic racism, you say something like, let's legalize tax and regulate marijuana and free the nonviolent drug offenders, you know, or instead of talking about a racist criminal justice system, you say, let's end mandatory minimums because, th- again, that's the solution to it. And you could talk about the solutions in a universal sense without actually bringing it up in a sectarian way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think, it. I mean, in a lot of cases, you brought up criminal justice, which I think in a lot of ways captures exactly um, some of the problems with that framing is that we also incarcerate uh, just an enormous number of, of poor white people in this country, too. Right. And so I think that 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 helps highlight that. Um, I think a good way to think about it also is we need these big universal protections that include all of us and make sure no one gets left behind and left out. So making sure anti-discrimination protections are in place to go along with these really broad, really bold um, programs. I want to zero in on something else you just said, which is that you did not find that a Democratic Party brand association was in and of itself a problem for working class voters. And this is sort of, you know, a theory that part of what you did in the studies, you tested some theories that have been offered by progressives. And one of those theories has been like, basically, you got to completely separate yourself from the Democratic Party because people just have so much disgust from this. Maybe we need to do a third party effort altogether in order to have a shot at winning this new coalition. Talk to us more about what you found with regard to that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's that's basically the takeaway is that uh, it was not a liability uh, for candidates to be running. So we tested in this. We tested uh, an independent. uh, We tested independent and then Democratic candidates to sort of see whether uh, whether that partisan affiliation changed the kind of support people had. So, again, looking across these different policy areas, looking with these uh, different day one priorities and different sound bites attached to them. And we didn't find uh, that the Democratic label was at all alienating. And I think this actually connects to another really important finding that we had from the study, uh, which is that I think another sort of progressive narrative that's out there is that there's this whole bunch of uh, working class non-voters who are just sitting there waiting for a great progressive, you know, they just they just haven't heard the good word of the progressive candidate. Uh, that's actually not true. We found in our study that these voters actually look a lot like um, they sort of they sort of line up with the with the working class uh, voters, if that makes sense. So so it's not that there's this untapped set of sort of non-voter potential that all we need to do is just get the message to them. This is really also an organizing project. This involves uh, just you know just like talking to uh, talking to traditional voters and 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 swaying them on these issues and doing that organizing work. It's the same task in front of us for uh, non-voters as well. And as many of those non-voters would be receptive potentially to a conservative message as to a progressive message, because I think there is this sort of assumption that like, oh, if we just got 
everybody to vote, then, in, you know, inherently progressive candidates would win more often. And that is not, in fact, what you really found here. Yeah. It, we, what we found was that probably that just more voting overall would probably help Democrats, uh, but it wouldn't necessarily, uh, there's no guarantee that it would help progressive candidates within that. Yeah. I mean, I had seen previously that um, like independents, they're not these amorphous blobs like they, and, and that's on, honestly the way the media more or less talks about them. Like yeah. these amorphous, like they're sitting there like Socrates studying everything until the last minute. Hmm, I will make my decision. <laughs> no, it's like there. some of them have very strong opinions, either left-leaning or right-leaning, but they just generally are characterized as independents. And, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be dismissive of this portion of your study because I think it's actually very important that you, you did the work to empirically show these things. But, you know, when I look at it, I think, yeah, the, the study as to how receptive people are to that kind of a message is how many independents are there currently in the house? How many independents are there currently in the Senate? You know, and, uh, this shows me that Twitter is not real life, this part of the study, (laughs) because you look at like, it's as simple as this. Yes, can RC Cola theoretically become bigger than Pepsi or Coca-Cola? Sure, theoretically, but is it going to? No. <laughs> and that shouldn't be controversial to say. I'm sorry, I don't even have a question. I'm babbling, Crystal. Please, <laughs> please take the baton. Um, Katie, I wanted to dig in a little bit more on this finding because I think this is really important. You know, the way that both parties work, but I have the most experience with the Democratic Party in terms of candidate recruitment is the thing they're most interested in is how much money you can raise. And lo and behold, the people who usually can raise the most money are rich people who either can self-fund or they love the self-funder, or they can raise a lot of money from their also wealthy friends. The DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, I don't know if they still do this, but as of a couple years ago, they would literally take your phone and go through and do something called Rolodexing. And they had a certain dollar amount that they wanted you to be, to be able to identify in your contacts of how much money you would be able to raise. So it's not a mystery that we end up with a House of Representatives and a Senate that is effectively all rich people, <laughs> very few exceptions, yeah. that even as the levels of diversity have marginally improved, so a lot more of that could be done there too, but marginally improved, um, class status is totally stuck. No progress. There is very few, very little representation for the working class in um, in these bodies at the federal level or at the state level either. Those numbers just haven't budged. And one of the things you find is that this really matters, that people don't care that much the gender or race of the candidate they're going to vote for, but they do really care about the class background. Could you draw on those results a little bit more? Sure. So I, th- I mean, I think it fits with, I, I mean, it sort of fits with thinking about the fact that this populist progressive narrative, thinking about, you know, the working class versus uh, some sort of economic elite, it makes sense then that, you know, the candidates that we put forward, the CEO of Fortune 500 companies and lawyers aren't playing very well with that crowd. Um, and, and this really was an extremely strong finding of the study across the groups we looked at that, uh, that working class candidates uh, were were very popular, and we did see some interesting. You know, one of the the one of the things I think the most interesting finding. So uh, the actual numbers are in in the study, but but another sort of trope, and this is more of a moderate Democrat trope, and the appealing to the center. 
teachers were an extremely popular category here. They were even more popular than a military sort of mainstream, uh, a mm. mainstream military veteran. Um, maybe a terrible thing to be saying here when we're recording on Veterans Day. Uh, <laughs> both of my both my grandfathers are veterans, so I feel like that. But um, but yeah, so I think that we really saw a strong preference here uh, for uh, clan- candidates uh, from working class backgrounds. Teachers, um, construction workers was one of the other categories we looked at. Um, and to your Democratic Party point, I just can't help but bite. I think this is why this this is a question for um, for the party, because not only do they have individual fundraising, but this is sort of a question for the DCCC. Uh, part of the function of that structure is to do fundraising for the party generally. Um, so I think you're completely correct. Campaign finance structure currently is not conducive, uh, not conducive to uh, running working class candidates um, from these particular battleground, battleground states. But it is something that uh, the Democratic Party could choose to focus on and choose to divert resources to. Yeah, that like that's the thing that uh, when I was looking at this part of the study, um, it's like, OK, people in theory prefer working class candidates, but we don't get like any working class candidates. And then mm-hmm. so I guess I guess the response is that's literally all systemic because purely because of the corruption, purely because you need the money to get elected and you raise it from big money donors and corporations and all that stuff that leads us to this place. Uh, you know, it, would you say that's why we're at a place where I just covered a story earlier today, 12% approval rating for Congress. Is that one of the main reasons why? Because we basically don't have working class candidates in there. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Everyone loves their representative, but hates Congress as a whole. So hard mm. to figure that one out. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I do think, you know, I think that's one of the places looking forward and for, for what we do next, you know, one of our projects that we've started, but, uh, but want to continue with, um, with the center is looking at, um, actually going and collecting information about the progressive candidates that are running in state and local elections that we may not know about yet, or that we want to sort of collect and look across that group. Um, but a question that we can't answer, answer on our own. And I think a place that we hope that, um, the study pushes some discussion is, you know, groups like the Justice Democrats, when you think about these progressive candidates who have been really successful, they've figured out a fundraising model, they've figured out a campaign strategy that works in those districts. I think what's clear from our findings is that something we might need a sort of different set of structures and a different approach. Yeah, um, certainly a different kind of candidate, but maybe also to the sort of technical campaigning point that we're having, uh, possibly that too. Yeah. I've worked with a number of working class candidates running for Congress. And I mean, there's the structural barrier that I just discussed, just purely the DCCC and these other Democratic Party institutions are looking for rich candidates. They love self-funders. They love people who have a lot of wealthy donors already in their network who are already like plugged into Nancy Pelosi's Silicon Valley fundraising hub. I mean, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's also cultural barriers because, you know, I watch and he he's told the story publicly, so I don't think he would mind me sharing. Um, Randy Bryce, who ran against Paul Ryan, who's an iron worker. He's at Iron Stash on Twitter. Amazing. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, super passionate, super smart, has lived the struggle like he is that guy. And, you know, he caught a national fundraising wave because he was opposing Paul Ryan. He put on some great ads people really responded to. And so suddenly he raises millions and millions of dollars. And then once that happens, the party's like, okay, now we have the time of day for you. So he ends up going to some of these, you know, fancy fundraisers in places like New York City and Silicon Valley, et cetera. And the way that the donor class treated him was so disgraceful. 
I mean, they just had such, they were so condescending and so full of contempt for this man um, because he didn't come from their similar social set and wasn't, you know, a lawyer or whatever they're used to their candidates ultimately being. And so they were grilling him on like, well, do you have white papers on this or that? And just Mm -hmm. treating him very condescendingly. So to your point about more institutions, like it doesn't just question that fundraising model. It really is about building a separate pipeline to power because there are almost insurmountable roadblocks for working class candidates all along the way, not to mention just the financial. It, like how many people can just take two years off of work and go run for Congress, right? That right. in and of itself is a massive hurdle. Um, and it has led to Congress being a bunch of millionaires, very few of whom really are in touch with the needs and priorities of the American people. And that's how you end up with that 12% approval rating ultimately. Yeah, no, I'm, I completely agree. And I think, I mean, I think though it is a question like a separate pipeline, but it's also, you know, I think that they need to take this seriously if they want to have any hope. And, you know, we aren't the only ones saying this. I think a good other example uh, is sort of the response to David Shore's I think who raises really similar tr- critiques that uh, to we do, you know, the focus and the sort of concentration, the type of uh, sort of elite coastal staffers who are reinforcing what we sort of characterize in the study as this more woke activist framework, which isn't resonating uh, with a lot of Americans. And, you know, Shore's basic response from the establishment was that he wasn't sharing his data and and uh, and needed to show more of his work. Which, to me, I think the 2020 elections are a great. Uh, uh, public, public uh, recognition of, I think, the validity of his findings. But yeah, that actual, um, that actual reckoning and and thinking about that within the party um, is, is, is the question. I think if we just put out more pictures of Nancy Pelosi officiating Ivy Getty's wedding. Ivy Getty. I think, I think that's going to connect with the working class, Kyle. Yeah, just some more relatable content. Yeah, Yeah. more relatable content like that or her ice cream freezer or whatever. That's going to draw in the masses. She's going to do Bob Exxon Mobil's wedding. Yeah. That ice cream, Um, though, it's pretty delicious. That ice cream is delicious. Yeah, the Pelosi ice cream is actually Um, really good. So here's here's like a a strange question for you, but I'm very curious to your response based on this study. Um, so I'm a, I'm a well-known opponent of what the, you know, political junkies would call the general election pivot in a presidential election. So in other words, in the primary, if you're a Democrat, you're supposed to run nominally to the left. And then when you get into the, into the general, you you shift to the center. Same thing for the Republicans. They're supposed to throw red meat to the base. And then when they get into the general, they pivot to the center. And this is something that's almost like cheered on by the media. Um, some call it a general election pivot. I call it lying <laughs> when, when you say in the primary <laughs> here are my beliefs and then the general you're like i don't believe any of that stuff that's crazy um so on the findings of this study uh, would you be comfortable saying that to the extent anything to the extent you could win a presidential election without any pivot whatsoever if a democratic uh, a democratic primary presidential candidate were to be a progressive populist in the primary and then be a progressive populist in the general. Um, is that the single best model for one to win the national presidential election compared to any other uh, philosophical approach? Mm, I, so it's a tough question. I want to I want to um, maybe say two things. One, we were specifically looking here um, at congressional candidates. So the way that we set that up was 
um, was thinking about congressional races. Not that some of this can't apply to broader races. Um, and But on your, I think the more important point you're making is on this moderate and the race to the center, that I think is really one of the core, you know, thinking about our the progressive intuitions that we are interested in studying, and then also these more social scientific um, intuitions, this sort of the median voter theorem or the idea that you need to appeal to the voter at the middle. So those were kind of who we were hoping we were looking at. These are working class voters in swing states. These are the people that, you know, uh, campaign pundits are saying, these are who you swing to the middle for. And that that really wasn't what we found. Like I said, the sort of mainstream uh, uh, mainstream candidates who proposed things like public infrastructure, strengthening Obamacare, didn't fare as well, especially among these Democratic-leaning working-class voters, as those who embraced a more uh, uh, the the bread and butter economic issues, Medicare for all, jobs for all, and had this more populist rhetoric. So I think it really does reinforce that this idea of a, a of a median or or moderate voter, it's not it's not the sort of easy spectrum that that is imagined onto. Uh, and we need to be much more specific there. But I've evac- effectively aid, uh, evaded your question. Uh, hey, of how listen, to- <laughs> you say you evaded it. I say that counts as a yes to my question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> put that in the yes column. Um, Everyone's Katie, happy then. Finally, obviously your survey here is looking at the entire multiracial working class, one part yeah. of which is the white working class. There are plenty of progressives who would say, forget about the white working class. They're too far gone. They're just continuing to drift to the right. We can build a successful coalition with black and brown Americans and the white college-educated um, cohort. What do you say to that? Um, what do you say to those folks who say, let's just not care about the white working class. Let's just build a different coalition that excludes them? I mean, I, I don't think there's, there is this idea that there is a white working class. I really think that's one of the things that we have some pretty uh, helpful findings pushing against that kind of claim. There are certainly elements uh, among this white working class that are probably not reachable, that we're not going to be able to pull no matter how much. But, I do, you know, one of the takeaways from the study, the popularity of this populist progressive, particularly of this rhetoric and how resonant it was, uh, with respondents, including and particularly these blue collar uh, respondents that we had, kind of shows and gives you a, it gives you some insight into why Trump was able to sort of garner on that, you know, headed in a different direction, obviously, and a really different set of uh, political programs. But that's that's I think where that openness and that um, that window are. I think it also I think it's also. Uh, a, a flawed strategy and that it doesn't really reflect. And by it, I mean, just kind of forgetting uh, this entire uh, segment of the population and focusing, um, focusing in on uh, uh, working class communities of color. You know, it, it doesn't take into account the electoral realities, which are our, our, you know, electoral system is set up in a way that I don't think we're going to get to that majority without them. And, you know, our study wasn't just a study of the white working class. We saw really similar trends and really similar um, support for these policies among uh, among working uh, working class of all races. So. Very well said. Um, fascinating stuff. Great work on this. Uh, everybody should also go and check out your op-ed that you wrote in The Nation for more details here. The whole study is published in Jacobin as well. And 
it's really worth your while, guys. They did something very unique here and separated out all these different parts and didn't confuse this part of the left with that part of the left and really got down to the data of what works where and with whom. Katie, thank you so much for your time. We're really grateful. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you both. Our pleasure. All right. So that was Katie Rader. Um, Again, it was Jacobin, YouGov, and the Center for Working Class Politics. They did that study. And yeah, that... uh, I thank her for validating our entire worldview. Yes. Yeah, I really pre- I really appreciate that. Thank you to the In authors of that study. In conclusion, we were right about everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, for real though, we were right about everything. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the idea is progressive populism works. Uh, it has the most broad appeal. Yes. Um, and yeah, you can, it is true that you can micro-target certain districts where a different message works, but the one with the broadest appeal... Is progressive populism. Yes. I think FDR, I mean, granted, this was a long time ago. I think people would be fair to argue, hey, are you sure that's still true? Because that was so long ago. I think that's a fair point to make. But I also think that it's it's just not a correct criticism because it's not, it's not a fluke when in 1938, 80% of the House was Democrats, 80% of the Senate was Democrats, and of course, FDR won the presidency four times. I mean, Republicans at the time literally thought they might never win the White House again. After yeah. FDR, they they did term limits because they were like, we need to find a way to sort of rig the shit. Well, and for a long time, I mean, Democrats dominated the House up through until Newt Gingrich and the Reagan Revolution. I mean, that was, you know, basically the Democrats had the lock on the House. And it was when we introduced this corporatist yeah. vein in the Clinton era. And then we also layered on top of that then the like woke language. So you end up with the mean Democratic elite being like Kamala Harris, who's both a corporatist and woke, which is the worst performing <laughs> the people worst, worst performing that you could possibly study. have. Then you end up with a vice president with a 28 percent approval rating and a president with a 38 percent approval rating. Let me ask you, because you just mentioned Gingrich and this yeah. just occurred to me now. And I'm curious what you think of this, because I've, I've I won't say what I've said on my show okay. yet to this point, but I'll talk about it as you give your answer. Um, so Newt Gingrich and the Republicans at the time, they did, it was called the Contract with America. Right. Right. And now he claims, and it's bullshit, but he claims like, we didn't do a single policy that didn't pull over, I think it was 60% or something like that. Mm. Um, now, I will say, the one policy that Republicans talked about, which rhetorically, if they meant it, actually, you could maybe argue is a populist policy, it would be tax cuts for the working class. In other words, give money back to the working class. Yeah. And I noticed this growing up myself. I have, you know, personal anecdotal experience of this that, you know, I had an uncle who has since passed away. But he his biggest thing was always like, he's like, oh, you just got a job made to the real world. Well, now you'll get it when they start taking money out of your paycheck. Now you'll get it. Right. Like As in, like, that's obviously the reason why you should be supporting Republicans. Yeah. So would you say, in your opinion, would you say— that 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 that's almost like a pseudo populist message when the Republicans talk about tax cuts. Now, obviously, they when they actually implement them, it's only for the rich, so it's totally bullshit. Well, they'll give the working class like five dollars, right? And, and then, then they'll give the rich like five billion dollars. Exactly. I mean, that's right. what Trump no, did in his tax cut. Totally. Yeah. But would you agree with me that tax cuts for the working class actually is sort of populist, and it's something that? Uh, yeah, and actually, I think the working class should get a tax cut. I that's, mean, that's if you, what I say too. Yeah. yeah if you mm-hmm. compare to what the wealthy are paying, like this is an absurd situation. Right. Wage earners pay so much. 
in taxes and then they pay more taxes at the grocery store. I mean, it really is absurd and in their entire paycheck and they don't get to benefit from, you know, the Social Security tax cuts off at a certain level. I mean, these are insanities in our tax code that make it effectively regressive. So 100 percent I'm for a working class tax guy. See, and that's my point, though, is that like when Republicans manage to win, they somehow find a way to make a Weasley faux populist message of their own. That's sort of my point. Well, so this is interesting. Um, So here are the five different types of messages that they tested. They tested um, the populist progressive, the mainstream moderate, the woke progressive, and the woke moderate. And they also tested a Republican, what Mm -hmm. they labeled as a Republican message that sort of generally talked about like cutting wasteful government spending and those sorts of things. And so the very the, the soundbite that did the absolute best and had the broadest appeal was easily the populist progressive. The second was the Republican. Then came the mainstream moderate, closely followed by the actually they're pretty much neck and neck. The woke progressive and the mainstream moderate were about the same. And then the, worst. the very worst is the Beto, Kamala, Pete Buttigieg, the woke moderate. Which is everybody that is, you know, oh, these are the future of the party. Stacey Abrams. I mean, literally, when you go down the list of who Democratic operatives and elites think are the future of the party, they all fall into the bucket that is the worst, (laughs) that is the least popular. And, by the way, also has terrible policies and is like completely hollow so and um speak spanish in the middle of a debate for no reason right <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it makes everybody thing. uncomfortable yeah. right um yeah so so you can see here from you know just that response to the soundbite you see how trump who you know of course turns out to be full of shit on absolutely everything right. but you can see how his messaging picked up a segment of the working class and not just the white working class, by the way, especially picked up some ground with Latinos that had previously been voting Democratic. So you really, if you want to have any shot with this group, you've got to lean into the bread and butter economic issues. You do not have to throw racial justice out. You don't have to never not talk about it at all. But just don't use this jargony, off-putting language that signals to people, number one, you think that they're you're better than them. Yeah. And number two, that you don't really care about whatever's going on for them and their family and their life. The biggest disconnect I've seen so far between what I would call the activist left and um, and winning is <laughs> defund the police. Because that's one where, I, you know, there are plenty of people who I follow on Twitter who are like activist left. And generally speaking, that's also kind of the circles I run in. Yeah. But like, that's the one where they're the most off, in my opinion. Yeah. Where, um, where they, sorry. (laughs) It polls at 18%. And no matter how many ways you try to get nuanced about it, dive into the gray area, dive into every nook and cranny, parse it a thousand ways and explain you don't really mean the words that you just said, it doesn't really work. So, you know, I think the bitter pill for a lot of progressives to swallow is that while on the policy front, I, I, I say you don't have to give up anything on the policy front. I think you could actually vote down the line with the left positions, even on social issues. It's more about the messaging front that where I do say there are some bitter pills for the left to swallow, 
yeah. where you do have to drop the academic jargony language. You should never say intersectional or say Latinx. And, you know, you, you know, defund the police is another one where it, even if your response to it is, well, what it really means is that you divert uh, some percentage of the police budget to social services. I respond to you by saying, then fucking say that. Say that. <laughs> Don't say let me find a way to say this in the least popular way imaginable and then act like you're stupid when you disagree with it. No. Yeah. There's no amount of smug condescension you could direct my way that would make me go, yes, your stupid point is correct. Yeah. The policy, in my view, is correct of um diverting a percentage of the police budget to social services. The way we do yeah. policing is obviously a failure. And it um as Katie pointed out isn't just a failure for black and brown people although that is where it is the worst but poor white people get treated terribly by the criminal justice system and by the police state as well. So the policy is not wrong. The slogan is a disaster. I mean there's just no other way to say it. And in fact, I think the slogan has made it less likely that those sorts of reforms ultimately uh, take place because we've seen at the policy level, at the federal level, nothing has happened since having the largest protest movement in history. In terms of a policy outcome from that, nothing has happened. So I think you're right in in all of those points. You know, the other thing that really, you know, this is a, a pet concern of mine, but I think not really a pet concern. I think this is a big concern, is the fact that working class people really respond well to working class candidates. And there's a wall a million miles high for working class candidates to be able to run and successfully win office. So it's no wonder that people feel like like these people are just totally under, out of touch. They don't represent me. They don't get my life at all, because most of the times they really don't. And so just that change, and I I think I would posit that if you did have more regular working class, non-college educated people who are running for office, they would also more naturally use language that wasn't jargony and the type of stuff that you see here in academic and, you know, post-grad type settings. Yeah, but see, the problem with that, though, I agree with all of it, but it's just, it's, it's more of a structural problem than anything else because the only reason why we get the wealth, mega wealthy candidates is because the mega wealthy candidates are the ones who have the connections and who come from wealth and privilege to begin with. And our system is completely and utterly biased in that direction. That's the whole point that, you know, the Supreme Court decisions in the late 1970s and on uh, McCutcheon, Citizens United, Buckley versus Vallejo. There's a whole list of them. These are cases that effectively said. Money equals speech. Right. Ending on politics is the same as freedom of speech. And so, of course, what you what followed that immediately was billionaires donating a colossal amount of money to politicians and then getting their bidding carried out. Corporations doing the same thing. And you're never going to see those working class candidates thrive unless and until you change that system fundamentally, which is why, you know. And, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. You absolutely should do that. I'm just saying that, that that's actually a much longer a and harder project because the Supreme Court made it so you almost need definitely need a uh, constitutional amendment to change that. So, you know, my workaround to that, it would be trying to get a, a form of direct ballot initiative at the federal level mm. where people can vote on the top five political issues directly whenever you vote for president every four years. Let me ask you this. Did the results of this survey study um, – make you think that the, the argument that Bernie in 2016 had more appeal to working class voters and white working class voters in particular because he used less of this woke language than he did in 2020. Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think there's a question about that at all. Um, I think that, you know, it's funny because that really, his politics really are that, you know, the progressive populism. Yeah. And, but he was, they tried to hammer into his head. Everybody around him tried to hammer into his head that the biggest problem was that he was, you know, his coalition was too white in 2016 and we need to expand it. And ironically, they hammered into his head the wrong idea that the way you need to expand it is to be more pandery. Right. And so he did that. <laughs> and the results were worse. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a convincing case if he just ran the exact same campaign he ran in 2016, he could have won. Well, that, and he also needed to have that sort of killer instinct, but, and he didn't. Yeah, and, I mean, ultimately, the fact that people were so convinced Trump is an existential threat, that's the only thing I care about, is voting against that. But that's so. why I mean, that killer instinct, because yeah. what he could have said is, from the very beginning, what he could have said, he could have made the argument very clearly. There's a saying online, it goes, Bernie would have won. You know why people say that? Because I would have won. You already ran the experiment by putting in the safe person, putting in the establishment candidate. We had Hillary Clinton. Hillary failed. You want to try Joe Biden? You want to try this guy? You're going to get the same results. Yeah. If he said that over and over and over and over and over and over and over, because he, remember, he was leading the shit for so long. He was le- he won the first three contests. P- Pete didn't win fucking Iowa. You get what I'm saying? Yes. He, so stop and think about that. Nobody in American history has ever done that well in the first three and then gone on to lose. Then let me ask you this also. Why is Bernie Sanders like literally the only elected candidate at the federal level who fits this? Because. And even he doesn't fit it anymore. (laughs) Because there's a lot of social pressure on the activist left to also conform with every single aspect of the academic language. Yeah, because people feel like they get their lefty card revoked if they have a contrarian take on defund the police, or, or even they just don't. I mean, they may have the right policy take, but don't use the right lingo. You know, even no, that I think it's is much more okay. what I just said. <laughs> what do you mean? I think it's much more that it's viewed as a package deal. People don't realize that you can absolutely be like a hardcore leftist on economic issues, but then on social issues. Um, you know, not be down for every single, all the academic lingo and all the verbiage that goes along with that. Right. And all of the, you know, social issues obsession and all the sectarianism. People don't realize that that's an option anymore. They think it's totally a package deal and I have to be down with this and down with this. And so that's what, there's just not as many of, like the people, you've said this to me before and it's true. The people who would most um, fall into this category are labor lefties. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they they live it every single day, the right. economic aspect of it. Right. And they happen to be in a union with all sorts of people. So you're accepting across the board on the social front. And so what I mean by that is you're pr- accepting of gays, you're accepting of racial minorities, you're accepting of sexual minorities, um, but you're also accepting of like conservative-leaning people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, the whole focus is on we stand in solidarity. We're trying to get higher wages. We're trying to get health care. We're trying to get better benefits. And that's the exact same mindset that if you take it over into the political realm is wildly popular, but you don't see any real labor lefties or any large number of labor lefties leading the charge for a number of reasons. Yeah. Well, this also goes back to the Clinton era when he and his ilk made an intentional shift away from the traditional labor base to capture this rising, yuppie, suburban, college-educated, white-collar contingent. And so there's a lot less connectivity between 
people who think in that way and have that certain value set of solidarity with the people who really run the party now. And it, was, it wasn't just strategic. It was also a deal with the devil because they looked at the Republicans and saw how much corporate money they were mm-hmm. raising and they, and they said, wanted we need to get in on too. that game too. Well, mission because, accomplished. They did because that Because we'll part. win if we get in on that too. And he, he was right that they won. They won an election cycle, but they lost the fucking soul of the Democratic Party, which was the Union Democratic Party, the New Deal Democratic Party. It became, you know, not a labor party anymore. Yeah, you know? and then and now they don't win anymore either. So. Well, right, yeah. I mean, the the difficult thing is, if you are a progressive populist, as they call it, your battle's on two fronts. You have a battle against all of the moneyed interest and the corporatism in the Democratic Party, which is all of Democratic Party leadership now. You have to wage that battle, and you also, at the same time, have to wage a battle against the overly ultra-woke yeah. And so you get your lefty card revoked and then you get your your access revoked when you go after the corporatists. Yeah. So it's like mm-hmm. you're in no man's land, even though it is the clearest path to victory. Yes. Yes. And you get accused of all sorts of ugly and nefarious things. Right. So very interesting study. Um, really highly recommend you guys go and dig into it for yourselves because the data is really interesting. New York Times actually did a little write up on it. Shocked. Pretty shocked to see that one. Um, let's see who did this. This was David Leanhart, who does actually a lot of good and interesting work on labor and on politics. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much to Katie Reader for joining. That was awesome. And guys, if you support this show, um, obviously check us out on Substack. You can subscribe for free, sign up for free, and you'll get the emails every time a newsletter drops or every time the audio uh, podcast drops, and you can listen to it as soon as it comes out. And of course, to the people who pay $5 a month to get the video version and get it a day early, thank you so much. We love you to death. And for those of you who haven't done that, please consider it. It really helps the show a lot, especially because we don't read any ads. We don't run any ads. The show is totally ad-free. We don't take any money outside of whatever you lovely people give us through Substack. So thank you very much. Yep. Love you guys. We'll see you all next week. 